Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond blog, Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or blog, Talk Radio. Well, tonight's show will discuss African Americans, philanthropy, and the civil rights movement from 1925 to 1968. And I am so happy to have a special guest tonight, Dr. Rhonda Jones. She is a scholar, a researcher, an instructor who specializes in public history, archives, digital history, United States history, oral history, African-American philanthropy, the civil rights movement, and international documentary studies. So let me give a warm welcome to Dr. Rhonda Jones, to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome, Dr. Jones. Thank you very much, Bernice. It's a pleasure. Thank you for allowing me to appear on your show. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, and this is a very interesting topic. So just to help us understand black philanthropy, why don't you give us an an overview of just what are we talking about? Well, we are talking about a period from the 18th century to the present where African Americans have practiced giving and serving and benevolence as a form of self-care. Operated informally through mainly religious institutions, African Americans have pooled their resources, no matter how meager and, and more than just financial, but also in terms of volunteerism and committee work, to uplift and support and sustain their own institutions. Okay, so in order for for this to happen, and you're saying from the 1800s to the present uh, form of self-care, just tell us uh, how did you become interested in this topic? 
I've always been interested from the perspective of grantsmanship and stewardship. Um, mm-hmm. I remember being young and looking at how different organizations would donate to community institutions and community organizations, and I remember being um, part of groups where we would want to engage in activities and we would depend on funds from external and internal constituents. And I've always thought it was interesting that someone would support and sustain someone else's dream and ideas and goals and ambitions. And I thought, well, I have a lot of dreams and goals and and I'd like someone to sustain my dreams. And how do you do that? (laughs) Well, I I understood about grantsmanship and and writing proposals and really the ask and and what does that look like and so tangible Mm -hmm. dollars are great but you know service is viable as well Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so you're you're not just talking about as you said just the dollars you're talking about the service given of one's time uh, is just as valuable is that where you're going with this I am in my research uh, you know, my, my work looks at time, talent, as well as treasure. There is so oh, much okay. expertise that's provided in terms of, you know, knowledge content and soft skills and organizing and just being accountable and, and consistency and being present. But what you're saying, though, because you said you're looking from the 1800s, obviously in your research you have really kind of mapped out what's been going on. So tell us, first of all, about your your research methodology. What have you actually been looking at? And then we'll get into... Uh, the Civil Rights Movement between 1925 and 1968. Well, it's been very interesting to do this study. It's been a labor of love because the records are not necessarily available. A lot of this information is qualifiable but not quantifiable. We know that this activity existed. We know that people were helped. We know that there were benevolent societies and burial societies and mutual aid societies and charitable acts of sitting with the sick and and helping communities and and developing schools. We know all this existed, but the actual paperwork, the, the paper trail that leads you to connect the dots, this remains as a single strand of information that's unable to tell a complete story. And in my methodology, you know, I've kind of looked at this not necessarily as historical myth, but just understanding that we know it happened. We can't, you know, tangibly prove that it happened, but we know that it did happen. So from looking at the 18th century on, you know, again, we know that our mutual aid societies and our benevolent societies emerged into our insurance companies. Mm Mm-hmm. Atlanta Life and North Carolina Mutual, you know, these were the beginnings of, you know, pooled resources, pennies, you know, small amounts of dollars that were collected from large numbers of people. We know that widows, you know, if if something happened with your husband or your, your spouse or, you know, your children, there were funds available that 
resources were pooled and you were able to have funeral processions that you were able to have a small stipend so that you could have, you know, something to sustain you. We know in, uh, you know, not just in the United States, but this also happens in Caribbean places. You know, I think they call them susus where there's a pool and, and, and ten people get together and they pool their resources and, and pool their mm-hmm. monies, and then one person will win the jackpot, and then the, the pool starts over. I mean, it, it's the same tradition. It's the tradition of it's not lending. It's just offering support. And so in looking wow. at this story, you know, I thought, well, mm-hmm. here we are in the midst of enslavement where we were not allowed by law to do certain things. And so a lot of this benevolence and this charitable activity was hidden in plain sight. Yes, you're right, hidden in, in plain sight. You know, I had a show on uh, uh, fraternal and benevolent uh, organizations, and and they also talked about the, the pooling of resources to help uh, individuals in the community. That's why these groups were formed. And so what you're saying is they're hidden in plain sight, so there was this informal type of support going on in the community that I guess you as you said you could not find all of the documentation to support what you knew was going on it's interesting that you see evidence in other places beyond primary resources for example Jacob Lawrence had a series of of paintings where Harriet Tubman was seen you know, giving, uh, receiving donations for her work as a, you know, a carrier in the Underground Railroad, that, that her hand is extended in this image and coins are being placed in her hand. And we understood yes. the interpretation mm-hmm. of what this means. You know, we see philanthropy, you know, white philanthropy in, in the story of um, Richard Wright's um, native son, where uh, the the young man is at school and the, the benefactors come to the school and they're supporting this fictitious, historically black institution and mm-hmm. and what the repercussions are with that. And so, you know, we see this, this charity of, you know, you, you, you need sponsorship, you need support. And the one thing about African-American philanthropy that is really hard to, the, the stereotype is that we are always recipients and that we are never givers, and that we are always on the receiving end. And so for my work, what I really tried to portray was that we were benevolent to each other and that it was reciprocal, and that many of our activities, 85% of the resources that we cultivated, were sustained within from, from our own constituency. And it wasn't until we had getting into the civil rights movement that we had larger demonstrations and the need and the necessity for additional funds, we then had to turn to external donors. Yes. Now, it's interesting that you would even mention that, I guess this is this myth that, I mean, everyone is on give, give it to me, but they're not willing to give out. And so, I mean, where did that come from? Well, the fact that where most did that of stereotype giving, or that myth get perpetuated? Our, our giving is informal and it's silent, mm-hmm. and it's 
it's mm-hmm. mainly funneled through our religious institutions. And so, you know, we are not of the the habit in the habit of, of say, you know, being public in our giving. Mm-hmm. We are not looking for acknowledgement. We're not looking for affirmation. You know, we don't want buildings named after us or the wing of an institution or, you know, we're not even savvy enough to think about charitable deductions and, and being, you know, itemizing on taxes and things like that. We don't give and ask for a receipt. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. we give in a way that, you know, it's not, it's immeasurable. I mean, I believe babysitting your neighbor's children is a form of philanthropy. You know, taking someone a plate of food is a form of philanthropy. I, I mm-hmm. just think, you know, currently, what does philanthropy look like? I remember there was a time when, when I would walk down the street and I would see an expired meter and, and I would just put a quarter in this stranger's meter, and I'd say, well, I'm being philanthropic. Yes, but I wonder if people think like that, or they think that if, if, if it's philanthropy, then it's more formal rather than informal, or it's, more, it's not dropping a coin in a, in a meter uh, to help somebody else. It's just doing something good. I think people misunderstand what being philanthropic actually means and that it's a gesture that can be so minor. It doesn't have to be magnanimous. And so I think just the stereotype within itself, you know, people don't understand that that African-Americans don't think that they're philanthropic, but they're extremely philanthropic. Hmm. Well, when you talk about your your research, and, and everyone perhaps needs to understand that you have been doing research, tell us how long have you looked into this, this entire topic of tied time and talent, and then what do you hope others will understand about uh, African Americans and philanthropy? Well, let me start by saying before I was on the path of looking at philanthropy during the Civil Rights Movement, I initially started looking at philanthropic activity during the Harlem Renaissance. I was very okay. intrigued by the idea of patronage and, and what did that look like and, and which artists and, and you know benefited from these gifts and what did they do with the money, and what kind of stipulations came with the money? Um, you know, Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston and Elaine Locke, they all had the same patron. And then you had, you know, these these kind of prizes and awards that were given to artists so that they were able to just write and create as opposed to taking day jobs that would prohibit or, you know, keep them from, from their being, you know, their, their creative talent, their genius was smothered by the fact that they had to do these manual labor jobs. And so these prizes and these awards and these fellowships enabled them to travel and to create and to write and to elaborate and pontificate and to just, you know, be the geniuses that they were without the encumbrances of trying to support themselves. And so that kind of, when you know, I was younger in my early uh, undergraduate years at Howard University looking at the resources that were available at Moreland Spingarn and Founders Library, and I just thought, you know, this is very interesting 
the, the idea of the give and the giver and the recipient and the stipulations that come with it and the benefits that result from it. And then when I became a graduate student, I had a course in the civil rights movement, and the topic that I chose to do for my seminar paper was fundraising for the civil rights movement. And I had never thought about it. And I thought, you know, we look at the movement in terms of legislation and, you know, enfranchisement and equal protection, but how did all this happen? How was this all made possible? And I looked at the, you know, expenses, for example, that the NAACP incurred just to bring a case to trial. You know, the attorneys themselves often worked pro bono. Thurgood Marshall and Charles Hamilton Houston, you know, sat and and were in Washington and New York, and they drove to the South in their own car with their own gas. They weren't allowed to stay in a hotel, so they stayed with local people. So you see that evidence of giving and support. You have the plaintiffs who volunteered to, you know, be part of these court cases. And so all of this, as, as I started to review and to research, fundraising really became interpreted, reinterpreted into the idea of philanthropy because it wasn't just about the money. Mm-hmm. Right, and when you talk, I mean, you you gave some examples of just the evidence of giving, and during the civil rights movement, and you know, I'm I'm thinking that perhaps people didn't even think of that as philanthropy. I mean, they just thought of it as it was a necessary thing that you had to do if you were going to uh, to see any progress and or see any legal support for uh, some of the civil rights cases, then someone had to offer, and that's really what you're saying, they're offering their services and not expecting any type of compensation. So they just gave. And they gave, and you think about in terms of dollar value. You have African Americans who have modest incomes, who spend Sunday tithing, and then attend these rallies and, and these, you know, mass meetings about the movement, and they're giving again. So if you're making, you know, $10 a week, that's almost a third of your income going to right. sustain an idea that may or may not come to fruition. It's one thing mm-hmm. if you give a dollar to the building fund, you know at some point the church or the extension of the church you're going to see will building. be built. That's right. That's right. Well, we have uh, two two responses coming out of the chat one room. Uh, one uh, response is that they really like to hear you give some examples of African American philanthropy uh, beyond the one that you just mentioned, the pro bono legal work during the civil rights movement. Well, I think about when they held these mass meetings, they were often at 6 o'clock at night. So you had just come from work. You had put your, bathed your children, put them to bed, and you've gone straight to the meeting. Two hours in, you're hungry. Someone is downstairs supplying sandwiches. Mm-hmm. Who is that person? That person is the person who's running the canteen, the sandwich place, that feeds the day workers. 
So that dollar that you're giving, a portion of that is going to help to pay so that demonstrators and, and participants can eat after the meeting. I mean, mm-hmm. those mm-hmm. small acts, those small incidences of giving that, again, no one is saying, you know, I'm, I'm advertising this, I'm, I'm doing this, and, and look at what I'm doing. They're just doing it because it needs to be done. I, I just mm-hmm. remember uh, when I went to Birmingham, to the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute, and I spoke with the archivist, and she allowed me to listen to a series of audio CDs based on the meetings that were held in between April and May of 1963 in the midst of all those demonstrations. And I remember there was a radio station in Chicago um, that took up a collection, I don't know if it was before or after that, the incident of May 7th when the water cannons and the, and the police dogs were, were attacking the demonstrators. I don't know if it was before or after that. But I remember the uh, attendant of the, the radio station telling the participants, we raised $1,000. And just the the uproar and the the cheers and the applause in the audience, in the church Mm -hmm. that that are hearing this announcement. And I thought, how do I tell this story? Writing these, these, about these acts isn't enough. I have to make this story somehow digital so that I can include this excerpt. Right, right. And, I mean, so you're saying they basically did a kind of pass the hat and raised $1,000. <laughs> Pretty much. And, again, you know, you, you think about Chicago is Mississippi South. And so even, you know, people think, well, you're in the north. We understand that racism traveled. It was just as racist in Illinois as it was in Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia. And mm-hmm. just because African Americans had migrated – that didn't mean that they severed ties with fam- friends and family that still remained in these small southern locales. That's right. That's right. Well, there's another question coming out of the chat. And uh, did anything jump out for you after World War II? I think, as we all understand, World War II was such a watershed for African Americans. What what really what I learned as a student that the movement, of course, didn't begin with this 1955, you know, Rosa Parks not removing herself, you know, from her seat. The movement mm-hmm. was ongoing and it was continuous, and and so it's almost like what happens in the 1940s is the dress rehearsal for what happens in the 1960s. Every single incident that happened in the 1960s happened in the 1940s. They had sit-ins, they had freedom rides, they had demonstrations, you know, they had don't buy what you don't, can't work campaigns, they had, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Mary Church Terrell and, and uh, Polly Murray were, were demonstrating in the 40s. You had the, you know, the formation of the Congress of Racial Equality. You had the development of the Inc. Fund, which became the legal arm for the NAACP. And so the stage was set 20 years prior. You know, you have what happens with what I, you know, what I teach as well. And I tell my students, you know, which president do you think did the most 
to advance the cause of civil rights. And, of course, everybody says Kennedy. And I said, what did Kennedy do? Kennedy was, Kennedy was assassinated. What did Kennedy do? I said, it wasn't until you had an Eisenhower and a Warren Court that you had Brown versus Board, but all of this was because of Truman and, you know, his, his act to secure these rights and the development of, you know, the United Nations, where we as a nation are taking a look at ourselves and looking at our hypocrisy about how can we promote ourselves as spreading democracy, yet we've got so many problems at home. And I, I'm, right. I'm so grateful for those African-American mm-hmm. veterans that were able to push, I mean, I mean, gosh, A. Philip Randolph is just so unsung in all of this. And if I could mm-hmm. do it again, if I could rewrite my book, A. Philip Randolph would have been the recurring thread from beginning to end. So what can you tell us? What did A. Philip Randolph do that would make you want to rewrite your book? Well, A. Philip Randolph was a socialist. He was a socialist democrat. He was a, an intellectual. He was a thinker. He was an organizer. He was a labor organizer. I mean, the fact that he unionized the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, I mean, that story is still being reinterpreted. The fact that he took them from a tip only to actual wage salaries, and we think about these African-American porters sustained communities, bought houses, put children through school. And in doing so, you know, you have a man like A. Philip Randolph who had such vision, who then establishes himself as a labor organizer, and then he moves on and he's becoming involved with equal employment acts that he stages a tentative march on Washington in 1941 that then becomes the official march on Washington in 1963. And everyone forgets that it's a march on Washington for jobs and freedom. That part gets cut off. It was not just a march about enfranchisement and equal rights. It was about jobs and and employment equity. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. Randolph, you know, from 63 through 68 with the Poor People's March, and, and he's just concerned for humankind, not necessarily, I mean, he is very Afrocentric, and, and, you know, his interests rely in the black community, but he is also thinking about what is this doing to us as a human race. And with with his his whole philosophy about what what what's happening to us as a human race, what type of philanthropic activities uh, did he have, uh, or that he really kind of motivated others to give? Uh, well, you know, what can you exactly say about that? Well, it's interesting because in you know. And thinking about fundraising is an aspect of philanthropy. You think about, again, service. So to raise funds, for example, for the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, there were benefits at the Apollo Theater. And tickets were sold, venues were scheduled, and the proceeds were donated to the Brotherhood. In addition to that, they had multiple fundraising schemes, like selling buttons. And you think, five cents, ten cents, 
how much money does that accrue? Well, if you've got a button committee that consists of 10 or 20 individuals in multiple cities generating revenue and it's all being, you know, deposited for the sake of legislation and and briefs and, and all kind of, you know, to file an affidavit and, and to file appeals, that's what the money's being used for. The money's being used to place ads in newspapers, to bring attention to these problems. The money's That's being used right. to, you yeah. know, transportation and travel. Well, if you're on a speaker series, you've got to uh, drive or you've got to take the train or you've got to take the bus. You have to eat. Western Union, they, you know, a lot of this information was transmitted through telegraphs. And, you know, so Western Union was a big resource of, of why people needed money. Mhm, mhm. So you know, back to something you mentioned earlier about just this whole myth and stereotype that people are just wanting to be the recipients, but they're not giving. You're saying, wait a minute, no, that's not necessarily the case. That people were giving; they were giving a lot, and it it had a focus. That there was a reason why they were giving. And it generated, the, you know, all these multiple fundraising activities were generating revenue so that they could, uh, it was for a cause. Well, it's, it's important not to dismiss that those who have the least give the most. And mm-hmm. so you have African Americans who are underemployed or unemployed, and they're giving Whatever they can. I mean, there's so many stories, like, for example, Julius Rosenwald, who um, had Rosenwald schools and, and had African-American YMCAs built. He made the community responsible for contributing 25% towards the building of schools and the Ys. And the stories about how the lines would just be stretched for miles and miles and miles and these people would come and just dump sockfuls of, of pennies on a desk. And they would say, here's my contribution to having the school built. And that's, you know, again, there is a vested interest in wanting to sustain and, and create these institutions. And African Americans right. showed up in large numbers. I mean, we know the story about Osceola McCarthy, the washerwoman who donated $500,000. That's right. We we know these people. We know them. And, And just to say, you know, there was a vested interest. I mean, education was extremely important. And, you know, it's so good that we had a Rosenwald. And we had people in the community willing to put in that 25% to make it happen, and we brought in those genes teachers because that was important, and that was an important value uh, in, the, uh, in our community. But what we're going to do right now, Dr. Jones, is take a quick break and come right back so we can continue because you brought up education, and I want to talk about education a little bit more. So we're going to take a, just a quick break and come right back. Okay, great. Thank you.
Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Now, you have been listening to Dr. Rhonda Jones share her thoughts and also her research on African Americans' philanthropy during the civil rights movement and beyond. Now, before we went on break, you mentioned education, and I did hear you say you attended a historically black university, Howard University. So That's correct. what in 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 your attending that university and now that you're out, what's happening with giving to the historically black universities? Unfortunately, giving remains at an at a low level in comparison to how alumni give to their other institutions. Um, we still don't understand why that is, why someone who had reaped the benefits of all the gifts and, and nurturing and support that they received as a young person to then, in many ways, turn their backs on these institutions and support their graduate and professional schools. I don't understand the psyche of that. Um, I, you know, have three degrees from Howard University, my bachelor's, my master's, and my doctorate. I've taught at uh, five African-American historically black institutions. And I think about, you know, again, it's, it's, there's a lot of love and there's a lot of support that somehow that translation gets lost once they walk across the stage. And there mm-hmm. is no sense of, you know, ownership and there's no sense of, of, you know, of giving back, of saying, you know, I'm grateful for all that was given to me and the least I can do. I mean, they have these campaigns where you can buy a brick. They have these campaigns where you can buy books for the library. I mean, the level of giving, again, it's not based on writing a big check. It's, it's acts that are just so small. And mm-hmm. for some reason, you know, you get that envelope and you think it's going to get trashed or shredded with all the other, you know, useless information because I just don't, I don't have it to give and it's not important enough at this time. Yes. And we think, you know, but, I think about philanthropy in terms of grains of sand on a beach. They're they're small and they're, you know, very, very, very minuscule to the eye, but collectively sand is weighty. And it's dense, and you can build, and you can lay a foundation. That's right, you can. So something is missing somewhere. But let me also get to another subject. Did any women take on some leadership roles that link to the idea of African-American philanthropy? You have several 
women who are featured prominently in terms of their organizing and community building and and just committee work. As we know, all of our institutions include an auxiliary board that consists mainly of the women's auxiliary, and we know that the women, the men led, but the women organized. I mean, that's that's just what we say, and we understand that is to be true. And so you have women, like, for example, there was a woman, uh, I believe it was in Alabama, and she had a, a group, the Club from Nowhere, and she baked pies and sold the pies to raise money for the movement. What people didn't know was she was the only member of this club. Oh, so well, that's it, it's not this brigade of, of, of women baking and cooking. It's just her by herself working anonymously and, and selling these pies, whether she sold them the whole pie or by the slice. It was that small contribution that made a tremendous difference. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But were there other women? I mean, you gave that example of this one woman that baked pies, but what other women are you aware of that were philanthropic and and led uh, the, a movement of giving? You had, for example, Ida B. Wells and and the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs, Mary Church Terrell. They were organizing anti-lynching campaigns and raising funds for legislation. I mean, to do this in the early, you know, 19th century, late 20th century, again, they're petitioning legislators. They're placing ads in newspapers. This is the 1890s, you know, late 1890s. And so you have these collective groups of women, NACW with their motto, Lifting As We Climb. These are the same women who were part of, mutual aid societies and benevolent societies and church organizations and auxiliary groups. And, you know, most of the people had these kind of overlapping memberships. If you were a member of your church, you were also a member of the NAACP. And Mm -hmm. if you were a member of, you know, if you attended a historically black college, you were probably in a fraternity or sorority. You were probably a Mason or an Eastern Star. And so you grew up with an understanding of, fraternal brotherhood and, you know, sustainability and and understanding, you know, Robert's rules of order of, of how to, to govern and the importance of that and service. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Well, we have a, 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 a comment coming out of the chat, and they're just trying to wrap their hands around this whole uh issue of money and philanthropy and and the pies raised. So kind of uh, put this in perspective when you mention uh this one woman and the fact that she was the 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 only person that was in her club and she was baking these pies, but what did it translate to as far as philanthropy? Well, what a lot of the money again Understanding what what resources were needed and and why. For example, when we talk about what happens after World War II, what happens after World War II in terms of the NAACP, 
for the most part, they were northern organizations. Now, you have Ella Baker, who is the director of, of branch membership, who single-handedly travels throughout the South, and she organizes local branch chapters. The strategy was teacher salary equalization cases, that the NAACP would take on state legislators about having equal pay for teachers. Those teachers became NAACP branch members, which included, you know, revenue and membership and dues. That Mm -hmm. dues and that membership base supported and sustained those legal cases that came about during the 1940s. The graduate and professional uh, desegregation cases, the restrictive covenant cases, the... um, you know, dismissing the white primary, Democratic white primaries cases. So those were the resources that the NAACP used to bring this legislation to light. And and so mm-hmm. understanding when you look at philanthropy during the civil rights movement, you look at it in terms of the time period, the activity, the need, the response to the need, the give, the reasons why they gave or didn't give. And they were, you know, you in my methodology, I use a lot of oral histories. I use a lot of letters that were written to, say, Dr. King or to Roy Wilkins or to Walter White. I look at correspondence that took place among uh, Caucasian fellows. So, for example, um, you know, the NAACP and the National Urban League, they secured money from the Ford Foundation and the and the the Rockefellers, and so these kind of you know organizations would communicate amongst themselves, and they would say, well, we have a letter from K. Philip Randolph asking for funds. Do you recommend that we support this initiative? And then they say, well, he received a letter of support from you know, Walter White, and we have long supported the NAACP and their causes. So if if he can vouch for him, then I say go ahead and give him the grant. So you see, I mean, this is happening in the 20s, and then you see what's happening in the 40s, that it's membership-driven. But you also see that it's a concurrent cycle of funding streams coming from multiple places. You've got a speaker series where people are speaking at churches and halls. You've got memorabilia and ephemera, items being sold, you know, the NAACP having banquets, um, the Apollo Theater and, and, you know, all kind of venues across northern cities where African Americans have migrated. They're having benefit concerts, boat rides, fish fries, big whist tournaments. I mean, it's so small and so minor as someone having a house party and taking the proceeds and sending it to an organization versus someone reading what's happening in the newspaper and saying, this is terrible, how can I help? I'm going to write a check. Versus someone sitting Mm -hmm. and going to that meeting every single week, passing the plate, putting that dollar in the plate. So you see it's happening so many different ways and so many different levels, but it's it's like a pair, you know, it's like stairs. It's incremental and it's building, and then you get the backlash of of individuals who are saying, 
I received a solicitation letter, and I think you should take this money and, and, and build grocery stores, and that way people can have jobs. Why are you spending all this money on litigation and protests and marches and demonstrations? Where is it all going? And so, so we have a comment uh, coming out of the chat because, Dr. Jones, what, and this is Family Tree Girl's uh, response, she said, okay, so anyone who gives of their time and are their resources is a philanthropist. Absolutely. Is that right? Absolutely. If I give you my old baby clothes, you know, for your child, I'm, I'm, I'm being philanthropic. Mm-hmm. If I donate to Goodwill, I'm being philanthropic. If I volunteer at my nephew's school, I'm being philanthropic. If I'm helping to drive people to voter registration, you know, I'm being philanthropic. It's, it's, we have to but understand do you think that of, it's do, not do people money. think that way? Are they just saying, well, I'm giving these clothes to Goodwill, I'm, I'm donating this, but do, do they have the mindset that they're being philanthropic? I don't think they do. I think what they need to see is the snowball effect, that mm-hmm. you've donated your cast-offs, but those cast-offs are being recycled into programs to help mm-hmm you know, deserving people. They they don't see the backstory. They don't see what happens. I mean, you, you you drive down the street and you see those yellow bins that say, you know, we collect books or we collect clothes, donate here. And everybody just drops it off and thinks, well, I've cleaned out my closet. I'm I feel a lot better. But they don't understand what happens once those items come out of the bin and are collected. Right. And so through your research, I mean, were you able to come up with a, a value, a dollar amount from 1925 to 1968 to say this is how much money was given in the African-American community and this is the impact that this money or these services provided? to the people in the community? Well, again, this activity is qualifiable. It's not quantifiable. What happened Ah, in 1955, and and this is, you know, again, you, you have to look at the history of it. What happens in 1955, after the success of the Montgomery bus boycott, there is a tremendous backlash against the NAACP. The state's, the, the 11 southern states that pretty much um, defected from the Union and, and joined the Confederacy aligned themselves to destroy the NAACP. And they demanded that the branch members, that these branches that Ida B. Wells formed in the 1940s, they demanded that they turn over the membership list. Now, you know, once that membership list and those names were disclosed, those people were going to be harassed. Mm-hmm. They were going to be beaten. They were going to be fired. They were going to be run out of town. And so instead of doing that, they were they were ordered to cease and desist because these these white citizens council organizations were convinced that the NAACP was behind the victory of the Montgomery bus boycott. Subsequently, 
Dr. Martin Luther King was put on trial for perjury because he was accused of using the proceeds of the monies collected to sustain the boycott for his own personal gain. Mm-hmm. And he went on trial in 1960, and the trial, you know, he was found not guilty in, in four years later in 1964. But as a result, when the NAACP had to cease and desist in these local communities, you then have other auxiliary organizations that are organized that kind of pick up the pace where, like, for example, in Alabama, the the Alabama Christian Human Rights Coalition with Fred Shellsworth, that was a local movement center. And Alden Morris uh, writes about it in his book, Origins of the Civil Rights Movement, and he writes about these local movement centers that emerge, that fill the vacuum, they fill the void that, that since the NAACP can no longer operate. And so, again, mm-hmm. this activity of we have to operate hidden in plain sight because if we disclose how much money we raise, if we disclose how many people are part of this group or in this organization, they're going to be subjected to harassment. I mean, we, we talk about the bombings, the telephone threats, the, you know, fascism of, of you're driving down the street and then all of a sudden the police pull you over and they tell you you've got a, you know, broken headlight and then next you know you've got a ticket, next you know you're being hauled off into the woods. I mean, also during this time, they're collecting affidavits from people who are being subjected to harassment and, and threats. So you've got this whole, you know, bring the FBI, bring the justice system. There's a lot that's happening here that, you know, our 14th Amendment rights are being threatened. Our rights of equal protection are being threatened. So you have the affidavits, you have the court cases, you have the, you know, personal indignities that people are suffering. And so for that reason alone, a lot of this information was kept in private hands. I I mean, I use Birmingham as an example because um, the the treasurer for this organization, um, W.M. Shortridge, was an undertaker, and he kept all the records in his office and in his home, and there was a fire. Mm Mm-hmm. So well, I have so two much questions coming out of the chat. I mean, you mentioned the, the 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 fact that people didn't want to keep records because of fear of of retaliation or harassment. But what is the takeaway? I mean, for the future of black philanthropy, and I, I know that you're you're letting us know what was going on during the civil rights movement. But what's the takeaway now? And and really, is um, African American philanthropy still going on? Absolutely. I mean, if we look at it in current times, move on as a movement that galvanized that that you know, got Obama into office. Those mm-hmm. small donations, you look at Bernie Sanders and those small donations. You look at crowdsourcing and crowdfunding that's happening currently on the Internet. Kickstarter campaigns, someone saying, hey, support my dream. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what it looks like. And, you know, African Americans are no different from any other organization. Again, you know, we are not very formal. We continue to be informal, but we still continue to pool our resources in the same way. Mm-hmm. The same way mm-hmm. that we pass the plate at church. You know, I mean, I'm thinking, my church now, you can tithe through PayPal. 
Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. You know, and, and Western Union is, is resurged because of all of this now, you know, wages and, and having revenue and, and people needing and giving and donating. Well, one of the big, you know, activities that has been going on for quite a while is the uh, National uh, African American Museum. Exactly. And Again, they, the with donation. the members and people giving, and you send it in your $40 once a month, or your $30 or your $10 or what have you. And I'm, you know, just wondering just how many people actually gave. I don't know what what kind of records they kept about things like that, but there, there of course, have to be records about the acquisitions and the items that were donated. And and that's mm-hmm. also, you know, in my teaching, I teach about African-American archives and African-American museums, and I often ask my students, how do you think these items get here? Mm-hmm. Do you think they're, they're loaned? Do you think they're donated? Do you think they're bought? Do you think they're found? How are they acquired? How is it that we can have these exhibitions and these ephemera to display? And I think about, you know, there's a, there's a difference in African-American museums versus museums that, that cater to other ethnic groups because we don't think about things in terms of, you know, it's, it's old. It's items that are usable. You know, we could say it's my grandmother's china, but we still eat on it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not mm-hmm. that it's put away. We pull it out and we eat on it. So only within the, you know, recent, like, maybe 30 or 40 years do we begin to think about things like quilts as being something that's not, I mean, a quilt is, is a useful item. We didn't have heat in many cases. And so we had discarded clothing and, and fabric and that we pieced together that we repurposed and we made a pallet and, you know, a cover and, and blankets. It was not for right. artistic purposes. It was very, very practical. It was practical, yes. Well, you know, your your discussion of philanthropy, it is something that now I'm, I'm hoping that the listeners have picked up, that we're not talking about the rich people with the million dollars. No, you we're know, not. To give. We're, t- and, we're and, talking and closing, about ordinary, you know, ordinary person uh, sending in that donation Tying, as you said, giving up that time and and doing it for a cause, doing it for the good of the community. And so, believe it or not, we're close to the end. <laughs> so when we think about, and I'm just talking to these the, the genealogists and the, and the historians, and we're we're trying to say, well, you know, did I have a giving family? What resources would you recommend that that the average person look for to determine if they had a giving family? I think it's really about giving starts from within. You know, the way that that we assist family members, the the care that we share, you know, show for our elders, that that our young people. I mean, how much time do we spend loving and caring and nurturing and supporting one another? I mean, that is being mm-hmm. philanthropic, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. helping someone with their errands, you know, helping someone, you know, in a time of need, or, or even expressing joy and just just sharing. That's being, being philanthropic. I, I think, you know, we need to dismiss the idea that it's just about writing a check because it's so much more than writing a check. 
So, Dr. Jones, when can we expect your book to come out with your research? I am hoping that the book will come out by 2017. It's being considered for publication by the University of Georgia Press, and we are currently um, working on just some small, minor structural things. But it's an academic press, and academic presses take a little bit longer to get to print than a commercial press. And that's the mm-hmm. only reason why, you know, the, the lengthy time in between. But I will continue to talk about my research. I will continue to promote the story. Um, the the takeaway, a new uh, generation of research has come from looking at what happened in the 1980s because the NAACP once again is being targeted that these white businesses claim the demonstrations of the 1960s caused them to lose business, and so they sue the NAACP in the 80s and try to bankrupt the NAACP. Oh. Uh-huh. That's interesting. So that, that and then, you know, you have this, we now have the 1964 Act, and so parents are trying to enroll their children in white schools and those that are sharecroppers or work for the state they're being fired, their benefits are being taken away, sharecroppers are being evicted from the land. And so it's about economic repression as a result mm-hmm. of the movement. So economics is a constant theme in my research about, you know, we, we look at economics. It's a civil rights as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, well, I want to thank you so very much for coming in and, and talking to us tonight about philanthropy and giving and, and helping our community and trying to make a difference. And as you said, it's not always in dollars and cents. It's in a lot of different ways that you see giving taking place in the African-American community. So thank you so much for sharing your research on African-Americans' philanthropy during the Civil Rights Movement with us tonight. And everyone else, please remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history Family records, and by the way, check those family records to see if your family has a history of giving and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and at Virginius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your hosts, Bernice Bibby's Genealogy and Educational Services, LLC, and my website is www.geniebroots.com. I look forward to all of you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Dr. Jones. Thank you so much. Good night. Thank you for giving me this platform. Okay.